hey, if you're listening to this, you're about to listen to uh, a lecture from my class, biology slash psychology, 2606, Introduction to Behavioral Neuroscience for the fall term here at Algoma University. I'll be your host, Dave Broadbeck. I hope you get something out of it, but as I've said many times before, the real hope here is that my students get something out of it. If you do, well, that's also good. Oh, if you are one of my students, that definitely, you know, I'm starting to ramble. Without further ado, here's some intro music and then, you know, me talking about brains. All right. Uh, this is probably my favorite topic. I love this one, and I love it for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that it's counterintuitive and bizarre, and that's some of my favorite stuff in the science generally. When something makes it like, that's weird, that's one of my favorite stuff. So, just some introductory thoughts on this. Our sensory world is basically a representation of what we like call the real world. There is a world out there. For sure. But we only perceive, well, sense and then perceive a very small sliver of that world. The world that is really, the part of the world that's important to us. Okay? The part of the world that's important to us in our illusion so we have a really rich visual world, and not a very smelly visual world, or not a very smelly world, whereas a dog would have a very smelly world. Okay. So dogs, for example, are representing their environment using how their environment smells, as well as how it looks. There's a cool word for this, it's a German word, so umwelt is just a perceptual world and animal movement. Ours is very visual. Our umwelt is very visual, a dog's is very smelly, a bat's is all about sound. Did I tell you about the owl? I told you about the owl, the single cell recording of an owl. Oh, okay. Okay. It's hard. Things get all mashed up, especially in the front. It all goes together, and then both my classes are in this room. So, um, back, I heard this, this is a story, this may not be entirely true. Or it may be embellished a little bit, but uh, the guy who used to work in Queens, got him Barry Frost, and he had these owls he was testing, and his graduate students were testing, and they had the owl put in. And it seemed so recording that, so they put a microelectrode in the owl's brain, put the owl in a soundproof chamber, in a soundproof room, and the idea was to then detect when a certain neuron fired. Fine, very interesting. And the way, not anymore, but the way it used to be maybe 30, 40 years ago was you would actually have it hooked up to an amplifier and you would hear like 
a little click, and that's when they're on fire. So you could know they're almost firing. Now what we would do is we'd have it hooked up into a computer and it would just register, but whatever. This grad student hooks up this owl, puts it in the chamber, goes back to where she's working in the lab, and wants to see basically is there, there's, there shouldn't be any stimulation there because it should be auditory. It's something for the owl's hearing. So, but she's hearing. So it's very regular and she thinks, well, it's probably machinery. Because machinery is regular. So she calls over a friend, another grad student, the other grad student comes over and it starts to speed up here. Weird. They turn every piece of gear off in the lab except the single cell recording gear, which is a passive thing. It just records. It's not sending out any signals, so there's no way. And it's still making this noise. Do you know, what do you think the owl was actually hearing? Because it's hearing something. That's what those, that cell phone is. And remember, the owl's in a soundproof room. But the owl must be hearing something. Yeah, their heartbeat, my heartbeats. Exactly what it was hearing. In a soundproof room, it is hearing the heartbeats of two graduates. That soundproof to us, obviously not to an owl. So owls clearly have an extremely, really auditory world, probably an auditory world. In fact, I heard Barry Frost say it. In a talk where he was talking about this, he said that owls probably have as, as rich an auditory world as humans have a rich visual world. You can't imagine that, right? You just can't, right? The primacy of vision in humans is pretty striking. All right. Oh, and different parts of the brain do different bits of visual processing. Jeez. Three of the four lobes do visual processing. The occipital lobe does nothing but visual processing. The parietal lobe does some visual processing. And the temporal lobe does some visual processing. Then there's still connections to the frontal lobe. So it does some, it's not really visual processing, but it processes visual input. You're saying, excuse me, how is that different? Yeah, we'll see. And that's just vision. So we have all these other senses. And there's lots of them, there's not just five. You, know, you learn in school, you have five senses. Vision's at least four on its own. Uh, you know, there's four for touch. So I wouldn't, you know, don't get too worried. There are five senses, it's, it's just a simplification. Somehow this all seamlessly comes together to form our world, our umwelt, right? So you're hearing me speak, you understand what the words mean, you're reading what's up on here, uh, you notice that it's a little cool in the room today. All that stuff. But it all happens at once. You can't really separate those, can you? So it's actually kind of a cool thing about sensory systems in any animal, is that they must be putting this together somehow, and I don't know how, <laughs> and no one does. And if you figure that out, the Nobel people will be on the phone. So let's talk about vision. So like every sensory processes, vision is just converting some form of energy into neural messages. In our case here with vision, it's light. And in fact, to be even more general, it's not just light, it's electromagnetic radiation. Not radiation, we're all going to die. Um, don't be so afraid of radiation. Light is just 
radiation. It's not going to hurt you. Now, ionizing radiation, oh, that'll hurt you. That'll give you cancer. But non-ionizing radiation can't. You can't break the bonds in a DNA molecule, whereas ionizing radiation can. So your microwave can't hurt you. Wi-Fi can't hurt you. It just can't. There is no mechanism for it to hurt you. Just don't be so friendly. So X-rays, microwaves, infrared radiation, cosmic rays. Now some of these are scary. That's let's see, X-rays can. Well, you know that. You go to the doctor and you get an X-ray. Go to the dentist. Typically, most of us get an X-ray at the dentist every couple of years, and they'll ask you if you had any X-rays this year. How many have you had? Right? Because too many is too much of a dose of radiation. Which is interesting because when my mom told me that when she was a kid, a way they would size shoes, because x-rays were kind of new in the 50s, you just put your foot in an x-ray machine. And people would just do it. It'd be a fun thing to do with them all. Want to see my skin, my skeleton? <laughs> Amazing they didn't all, it's, see, people think it's just the cigarettes from back then. They, people were really weird in the 50s. Let's look at a diagram that looks like something you would have seen in grade eight. I believe you learned about the spectrum and all that stuff. Right? So here we go. Here's some different. What we have here. The reason this is circled is I don't know. I just typed in EM spectrum into Google, and that's the first thing that came up as an image. So I took it. It's probably the case that this is for something to do with TV. I don't know. Anyway, in fact, TV now is further up. Extremely low frequency. Anybody here ever served in a submarine in the Navy? Probably not. So you probably never dealt with extremely low frequency transmissions. Uh, let's see, TV, and we've all watched TV. That's over the air TV, by the way. Uh, here we have a microwave. I don't know what this guy is doing. Is he having a hot dog? Is that what's going on here? Is he maybe, are those, my other guess is, so it's a hot, hot dog from the microwave, you see? That's my guess. Or he's using, this is binoculars, and he's looking at the woman in the team. <laughs> but I don't know what he's doing and why it's that guy. But again, anything on this side can't hurt you. Like give you cancer and all that. <laughs> That's the bad side here. Uh, infrared is from heat. Ultraviolet in the sun, and there's x rays, cosmic rays. Don't worry much about cosmic rays because they don't reach Earth because of the magnetic field around the Earth. Okay. Now, some animals do see it in the infrared. Mosquitoes, a lot of, a lot of insects. How do you think mosquitoes find you at night by the heat of your body, which they can see? A lot of snakes see into the infrared. Ultraviolet radiation is also something that's out there. We can't see it, but a lot of animals can. A lot of birds can see ultraviolet radiation. 
Now, do we know what it looks like? Well, no. We'd have to ask the birds, and they couldn't really explain it to us. Okay? Birds don't do a lot of talking. Even a parrot would just look at you and go, cracker? Or whatever the hell parrots do. So the thing is, ultraviolet light disperses differently at different altitudes. So down on the ground, you don't see much. And the further up in the air you go, the more you see it. Oh, well, that makes sense, because birds kind of have to know how high up they are. They're actually, they can see their altitude, which is freaking cool. But it's not for us. There's no reason for us, because we live on the ground. So we never developed those receptors for, for that wavelength only. It's kind of cool, because sometimes you'll see, uh, like, for example, black-capped chickadees. They're, Birds. They, they, they look like the males and females look the same, except the males have a ultraviolet patch right here on their chest. We just can't see it. The females can. I don't want them to know. We can. It's kind of neat. So, the wavelength of the light determines the hue. That's just a color. Right, and it goes red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and blue, violet. What did you give? And the intensity determines the brightness. So these are actual, you know, wavelength and intensity are actual qualities of radiation. They really do exist. And we interpret them, our brains interpret them as, can call this brown? Let's call it brown. Sure. Brown. This isn't actually brown. There's no such thing really as brown. Which is a wild thing to think about. One of those things you think about when you're high, you go, good. So they're really, you know, that's not a whiteboard. It just, we perceive it that it has color. We perceive this as black, as writing here, which is crazy. Now, intensity is just how much radiation is coming. That's how Braille is. But again, it's a real thing. There are actual waves slash particles, because they're both, and I know that's weird. It's just weird. Quantum stuff's weird. Um, it's just the amount of photons, the amount of packets of light that are hitting your eye. So it's an actual quantum, by quality. Later, there's the cornea, and then the Cornea is just a covering on your eye. You can get injured in your cornea, you can get scratched, you can get cornea transplants. So when I was in grade four, a kid in my class got a scratched cornea from uh, bubble gum from a hockey card package. You know, hockey cards, the thing is, they don't come with gum anymore, but they used to come with gum. And they'd have, the gum was ancient because the hockey cards were printed months ago. And he just threw this gum. Somebody threw this gun in the, in the chamber room, in the cloakroom, you know, and then it hit him in the eye. I shouldn't laugh at that, but I didn't like that kid that much. He's grade four, so it's kind of great. Um, I'm sure he's fine, but he got a scratched cornea from bubblegum. Yeah, I really shouldn't laugh at that. It's not funny. It's a little funny. Um, your pupil size, that's the hole. It's regulated by the iris. That's the colored bits, right? And behind the pupil, there's a lens which accommodates. So it changes size. 
So you can kind of think of it like a camera, like the way a camera works, except that with a camera to change the focal length of a lens, the thing actually physically moves, right? Not with our eyes, because that'd be weird. So what happens is the lens changes shape behind our, our people. So that light then hits the retina, which is the back of the eyeball. And of course, the image itself is upside down. Now, that's not a big deal that it's upside down because your brain writes it anyway. Whoops. So your brain writes it. But the image itself is upside down. Uh, There's a guy, a psychologist named Stratton, 1895, a long time ago. Um, he decided to put on prisms, like glasses that were prisms that made the world upside down. So he's almost certainly the first person ever to have a right side up image in his retina. And he got sick, like just nauseous, which you probably imagine, right? And confused, like where am I, what am I doing? Bit. Then he adapted enough to it that by the next day he was able to ride a bicycle. And you got to know if it's 1895 or 86, whatever, it's one of those bicycles. Right? One of these guys. Any farther than bicycle. I wouldn't ride one of those now with regular. It's insane. You ever seen these things in person? Yeah, they're good. The wheel's only seven feet tall. I'll just hop on. After a week, he was fine. He was able to just do like, work. Everything <laughs> was fine. Um, when he took them off, he had exactly the same problem. So what ended up happening was he felt sick to his stomach. He was running into things. So very quickly, he learned that, oh, everything's changed. So our perceptual systems can be pretty malleable, right? Um, you do that to, uh, let's say, if you take a frog, I'm not saying you should do this because it's kind of mean, but you can take a frog and turn its eyes upside down, which is kind of gross, but again, maybe it's a little funny in a weird way, but what happens is, and that's kind of what, what, what happened with Stratton, except the difference is Stratton learned very quickly to ride his old tiny bike and everything like that. Frogs, if there's a, a bug up here, they go down here to look for it constantly. They never learn. They, they can't change that. But there's something special, and it's not just us, a lot of other animals too. Uh, today, when, when that kind of stuff's done, it's done with contact lenses that are put on the animal. Okay. So you don't have to actually do like that with a frog. Have you ever seen that happen? No. I, I really want to see that. Though. No, you don't. No? I don't think you do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just, I don't know, I've not seen it, but I don't think either of us really want to see that. Fair. Yeah, I think it's kind of, ooh. It's the kind of thing I think would haunt you for the rest of your life. Like, you'd be like, you'd just be sitting there thinking about nothing, and then that would just come into mind. And you'd go, oh, God, why did I want to look at that? Yeah, I don't think you want to see that. <laughs> okay. It's like when someone posts a video somewhere and it says, you know. Oh, like trigger warning or whatever? Yeah. And sometimes you go, oh, yeah, I want to watch that. No, I don't. No, I don't. Descriptions of war crimes maybe are enough for me.
to your acuity is how clearly you see things. Okay? So the acuity we have is affected by the shape of your eye. So nearsighted people, and most, I would imagine most people, anybody here nearsighted? Not really in the business, but it's like some horrible thing. Okay. Nearsighted people, their eyes are too long, or their cornea is too curved. So if you know anybody who's nearsighted, just call them old, old long eyes. <laughs> old thing to call somebody. I feel like that would really insult someone now. I have a friend who's nearsighted, and be like, hey, your eyes are too long. Your eyes are too long. And it just, it's the weirdest burn to somebody, right? He's going to feel weirdly insecure about it, I'm sure. Yeah, and that, see, that's fun. That's, again, I think it was established, so I think somebody getting their cornea scratched by bubblegum is fun. So, yeah. But it's a, yeah, it's, a, it's a weird thing to say to somebody. You know, your eyes are too long. And, what? Or maybe your eyes aren't too long. Maybe your cornea is too curved, old curvy cornea guy. It's a weird thing to say to somebody, right? So that far away stuff is kind of blurry. Because the image itself just isn't, on, the best image isn't on the retina. It's in front of the retina, so in fact the best image there is here, so back there it's going to be blurry. Just kind of like yelling at the camera, when you focus on one thing, the other stuff in the background might get a little blurry. Same kind of idea here. And farsighted is the opposite. So as you get older, you tend to get farsighted. Except for me, I just, I'm always bad sighted. And my prescription doesn't change, eh? Like, I mean, it's just, you know, these are awful. And some of it's neurological, right? So it's funny because I, when I go to the, whenever I go to the optometrist, and he's great. He says, well, you haven't been in in like five years. It's like, yeah, I know, it hasn't changed. Oh, sure, I'm sure it has. Then he goes through, he goes, eh, it hasn't changed. <laughs> my dad, I swear to God, he used to have to have things in other rooms to read them. Like trivial pursuits like this. So what Pope? He's holding up like that. Somebody go in the other room and hold the newspaper up so I can see who won the hockey games last night? That kind of thing. That just happens with age for a And you can see how that's easily corrected with lenses because all you're going to do is the lens just moves where they, the image is going to be clearest. Do you guys remember? Like in physics class in high school doing stuff with lenses, seeing where, no one that, did they, 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 they did that, right? Yeah. Yeah, right? So you got like, you draw a fake candle, draw a little candle, then you go to draw a lens and figure out, okay, good, I see some knots. I don't know what they teach in high school, because I'm not in high school. It's that kind of thing. So you can see, obviously, how, how an extra lens would, would help, perhaps. You know, you just changes them. Here's the retina. So there are two kinds of receptors. We've got cones and rods because of the shape, like cones and rods. I'm so happy they did that instead of using some dumbass Latin. I mean, it's cool that, because then I can say, you know, I actually know Latin, but that's not really worth it. <laughs> are basically for night vision and brightness. 
tones are for color and they're in the day. When a photon of light hits a receptor, a photon is just a piece of light, a packet of light. And it's both a wave and a particle. And I know that's weird. The world is weird and awesome and great, but it's just, it's kind of weird. It sends a message then via the optic nerve to the brain. Okay. Because of this, by the way, we have a blind spot because of the way it's connected. So if you've got your retina like that, all these receptors have neurons, have nerves that go to the optic nerve in the middle, right there. And in fact, there's a part of your retina that actually has no receptors. But it doesn't look like we have a blind spot, does it? Right? It looks like we don't. It looks everything's all filled in. There's no black dot. You've probably seen you know, those uh, demonstrations on an intro psych textbook, an intro psych textbook if you pick intro psych, uh, or you can just look online, look for blind, you know, blind spot demonstration. So it's not like you know, your car with a blind spot because you just can't see something. This is literally, it's impossible, and usually what it involves is looking at one object and then something disappears in the other eye. So our brain fills it in. Our brain fills it in. Big retina fan over here. I love it. Without your retina, you wouldn't see. So cones do fine detail and color. Whoops, that should have come up. Oh yeah. And cones really only work in the light. And they're concentrated in the fovea. The fovea is, well, fovea is a Latin word that means pit. Okay? And so whenever anybody says foveal pit, they're being redundant. Drives me crazy. I gotta go to the ATM machine. I can't see it, my foveal pit. You have any CD discs? Bother me, but they bother me. Like they're small things. But they I think CD discs would really bother me if someone said that to me. People, people didn't say you don't see any CDs anymore, so it's different. DVD discs, I've heard that. Oh yeah. Chai tea bothers me. Chai tea would, yeah, I'd say. Yeah, that's a, that's annoying too. Uh, there's there's a lot of them. It shouldn't. Those things again. You know exactly what people mean. It shouldn't bother you, but it does. I get it. And the rods are evenly distributed. So what that means then, well, let's just back this up a bit. You have many rods going to one bipolar cell. So if we've got Rod, rod, what's this? Kind of, that shouldn't be fat like that. Rod, 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 and they all connect to one bipolar cell, which is on the retina. Whereas cones 
their own light bulbs. So we see in, in dim light, we don't see a color. We think we do, because our brain fills it in, but we actually don't. Now you're saying, but Dave, when I look at my phone at night, no, but your phone is a source of light. I mean reflected light. So if there's very little light in your room at night, you ever done this? You get up in the morning and you don't want to wake up anybody, so you get dressed very quietly, and you put on a t-shirt, you walk out of the room, and you turn on the light, and you go, that's not the t-shirt I thought it was. It's an entirely different color. Right? So you, in the dark, you see a black and white. We see shades of gray, we don't see, we don't see color. So then it's the case, if, and if it's also the case that the cones are concentrated in the phobia and then the rods are evenly distributed, that means your peripheral vision is in black and white. And we, that's actually testable. And you can even try this, it's a little difficult to do because you have to get a room that's completely light tight, which is not an easy thing to do. So it's, it's hard to find a room that's completely dark. And you also have to be always focusing on in front. So if you have a good-sized room and you have a, some lights, like say Christmas lights, and you can have somebody even focus in the front and have the Christmas lights way at the periphery, turn them on, and you, you will get, yes, on and off, you'll get those right all the time. The color, if you've got four colors, you'll be right 25% of the time, random chance. Now, my uh, retinas are different because I told you I'm a melanin guy who wrote the visual system. So if my retinas, both the cones and the rods are even, evenly distributed, I have no phobia. So because of that, my peripheral vision's in color, which is the lamest superpower anyone has ever had. Right? Because very rarely when you're fighting crime, the people say, well, if we could only find out what color that is, but we have to keep looking straight ahead. You can actually just look over there. But I could do it. It's blue. Ah! It's the worst superpower ever. So each of these cells have what are called receptive fields. So let's, uh, yeah, let's try it. So that's if that's your retina. Anyway, let's say that's a receptive field for a rod. So any, they're, they're not that big. I'm doing that for. Also, your retina is not that big. That'd be some big eyes. Especially on all ears. That'd be on all eyes. So anytime light would hit anywhere here with this receptive field, you would see something. And then the cone ones are smaller, the rod ones are smaller. Receptive fields. So the cool thing that happens here is 
if, let's say that this one fires, this guy here, and this one here, and this one here. If all three of those fire at the same time, that means the photon of light must have hit right here. Right? Because that's the only place that all three could be activated. That's where those three receptive fields overlap. So this can tell you then, this is even with big receptive fields, as long as they overlap enough, and you have the gear to detect when they fire, which we do. You can be more precise than the size of, the, of, a, of a receptive field. So I, I like to think of these as pixels, but pixels in a picture on a, on a monitor or on your phone or whatever, they don't overlap. These things, these receptive fields overlap. So the, the, the pixel um, analogy kind of works. It kind of works. So it's one cone to one bipolar cell and many rods to one bipolar cell, which again makes the receptive field smaller for cones than it does for rods. There's about 130 million receptors per retina, but because of the way they're concentrated and the fact that this overlap, it's not like we have basically what's called 130 megapixel eyes. They're much more like about 600 megapixel eyes. And when you hear about retina displays or you know, uh, 4K displays, things like that, all that means is the light is concentrated more tightly than the receptive fields in your eye. So that's why you don't see any overlap or any pixels. It's hard to, this isn't a good example, but let's look here. Let's see what I see some pixels. Now, it's gonna get pretty close to see anything there, we can make. And I'm sure it probably is me too. Right. Okay. Another picture here. Lights coming in. Pretty straightforward. It's all stuff you've heard before. So basically, the pixels or the receptive fields are bigger for rods than they are for cones. And when I was like a little baby, and I mean, they knew my, my eyes were bad, but. I could see closer to normal, I mean, I still do, see closer to normal in the dark because my rods are distributed the same way yours are than I do in the day. Why can David see in the dark? Well, I can't really see in the dark. It's just that I see so poorly in the light that you're surprised how well I can see in the dark. That's all it is. I see normally. Eh, there's other stuff going on. But I see roughly normally in the dark. Okay, so we go from the optic nerve, there's of course two of them, go to these ganglion cells in the optic nerve, 
and then they cross, the two streams cross at the optic chiasm. It's called an optic chiasm because it's like the Greek letter chi. It's not an optic chasm because that would mean it was a pit, which we've already established is a fovea. So your eyes here, here. So these, and that looks a little bit like a Greek letter chi. Now, when I see the cross, what happens is each eye, each retina, has a left and a right. Of course, these things just have lefts and rights. Right always goes to left, and left always goes to right. It's crossed. So those inputs are crossing each other. And that's a pretty common thing. Um, mine don't work like that. Mine goes straight back because of uh, melanin. Uh, if you go to the visual system, I don't have any, so they just can say that. So I do not have an optic chiasm. But the rest of you do. Left to right, right to left. So once it's gone out of the optic nerve and out the optic chiasm, the next place it goes that the information gets sent to is the LGN. The LGN is the lateral geniculate nucleus. So the only word there you should know how to spell necessarily. So when it goes to the LGN, there's different visual pathways and different visual systems, subsystems, whatever you call them. So we call this system the geniculostriate system. Striate means stripe. So there's just different layers. That's all I mean. So some stuff that goes to the LGN goes to the occipital lobe, and some stuff goes to the parietal lobe. happening here? Back to here, back. That's the LGN right there. Then it goes back to the occipital. So there's also another pathway. I mean, we have this very rich visual system, visual world. We must have a pretty complicated visual system. 
do. So there's another pathway. This goes to what's called the superior colliculus in the tectum. The tectum is in the midbrain. And then to the pulvinar in the thalamus. Just goes to the thalamus, like every visual, like every sensory system other than smell. So that's called the tectopulvinar system. Which to me is always, tectopulvinar has always sounded like perhaps a genre of like East German techno music I've never heard of. Yeah, we got a tectopulvinar band, you know, like so. Very influenced by craft work. Great band. I met them on a boat in Chicago. Craft work, seriously? Yeah. It's the same day I uh, uh, was on a uh, fade at a music thing. My dad owned a music store, so and we were a pretty big store in Canada, so we went to these trade shows, and that, that was fun because that night actually, out of nowhere, Neil Sean from Journey, the guitar player, he needed, he was wanting to sell his guitars in Canada, so he met with our store, and he liked, liked us. And he came on the boat, and he said, hey, it's my friends from Canada. And hung out with us for a while. And then the waitress came over, and she knew who he was. But I understand this, like 1986, so Journey's a big friend. And uh, she gets his autograph, and she said, are any of you other guys famous? My dad said, I had Phil Everly from the Everly Brothers, which he wasn't. And then I said, I'm Adam Clayton, the best part of you too. And they just, we signed her napkin. Somewhere I think she's, this woman has this napkin that signed Neil Sean, it's really his thing. And then Phil Everly and Adam Clayton. You look Irish enough to pull off being in YouTube. <laughs> well, you, I guess, see what I get, I'll, have to, I'll, I'll find a picture at some point. There's a, in 1986, the big, you gotta understand that, uh, yeah, Adam had, uh, hair, yes, he had his hair dyed the same color as one. But I could put on a serviceable thing on Irish accent, so. That was fun. I don't know how, yeah, oh, no, no, I know how I got there. Okay, good. So the techno-pulvinar system. Now, in the medial parietal, uh, sorry, the medial pulvinar, the stream goes to the, goes to the uh, parietal lobe. And the lateral pulvinar goes to the temporal lobe. So what's happened here is it, get, it goes back to the occipital lobe and then out to the pulvinar and it's being sent out to different places for analysis. I'll show you this in a second. But note how this is, go we've gone to the occipital lobe, the, the, the parietal lobe, and the temporal lobe. There's only one left. Most of what our brain does is visual processing. There is more space taken up doing visual processing, I think, than anything else. Just, we're incredibly visual animals. So there are two streams that are, are created then. The temporal stream is called, so this, again, this is going, it goes back here and then out. So we've got a pretty good diagram coming up. And that's the ventral stream, and then the dorsal stream, so the ventral towards your gut, dorsal towards the back, we'll see in a sec. Here we go. So you see it goes back here and then it gets sent out. It gets sent out.
This was discovered by Mel Goodell from the University of Western Ontario. So this stream's gonna figure out what it is, and this stream's gonna figure out where it is. Whatever it is that you or any of us, I know I'm picking on you, but any of us would be looking at. Though yours works like yours, works like yours, works like yours, etc. And even mine works like that, even though the input's screwed up. Actually, our audition system, like our hearing works like that too. More on that later, but our hearing actually works the same way. It's got a dorsal and a ventral stream, etc. stream this is what what is that okay and the dorsal stream is how in other words how do I react what should I do should I reach out for something well how far should I reach And then we've got the other system, which is the wear system. That's from the LGN, and then we get the tectopolymer stuff. Evolutionarily, which of these is the oldest? Do you think? Which one of these is the oldest? Why do you think that? I mean, you're right, but what do you think that? It seems like the most important thing. It's the easiest thing to do, and it's probably the, you know, the first step we'll do that, then we can figure out what it is. Yeah. So when you think about the evolution of any visual system, the first thing it's going to be doing is detecting light just generally. And the, the next sort of crude thing that happens with whenever a visual system evolves, which has happened like 75 times or something in the animal kingdom, it's pretty common. Um, We see that where is the first thing. Okay. Good stuff. So this is vision for action. Sorry, what is vision for action? And this is how action for vision. Do I look that way? Do I look that way? How do I behave? So it's vision for action and action for vision. It's pretty brilliant. It's pretty brilliant stuff. 
So what's happening here is, here's a lovely diagram that I made. To the LGN and to what's called V1, that's the first layer, the very back, of visual cortex or occipital lobe. It's called V1. V for visual, one for first. So 90% of the information, you can just look at firing amounts, right? Goes from the LGN to V1. 10% is doing this, superior colliculus to pulvinar to V2. V2 is the second layer in. So most of the information is going to the geniculostriate system, LGN. But some is going to the superior colliculus as well, into the pulvinar. Talk a bit about the occipital lobe. Let's take the last slide. It's got five layers: V1, V2, V3, V4, V5. Oh, gee, do I want to do this? Okay, I'll introduce it, but I can't explain this in, in three minutes. Okay, there are different kinds of cells, as they're often a heart in our visual cortex, V1 has two different kinds of cells. It's got cells called blobs and cells called interblobs. It's called a blob because if you do a slice of occipital lobe and you stain it, you get what looks like a blob. Like it's like a, like just a gross blue of a neuron. And between the blobs are the interblobs. Thank you for giving us, again, sensible English names instead of ridiculous Latin names. The only concern there is it's got to have entirely different names in all kinds of different languages. So maybe it's not a great name, but I, I, I bet they just use blob, interblob in other languages. And these specialized cells do different things. They analyze different kinds of visual information. And you will hear more about that different kinds of visual information the next time I do one of these, which will be not, remember, on Wednesday we do Q&A for the test, so come with questions. On Monday you get the test. So next Wednesday, I know you're going to be, it'll be like, you know, like a to be continued on a TV show, you know, but, but you've got to wait. You can find out about more what blobs and your blobs do in V1 in about a week and a half. Thanks, everybody. And...
So thanks for listening uh, to the lecture. I hope you got something out of it, as I noted in the intro. Um, these are copyrighted, uh, share like 3.0 Canada, uh, some rights reserved, so you can redistribute this all you want, but if you redistribute it, uh, you can't make any money off of it. Uh, and also, uh, if you mash it up, I get to mash up your stuff. Uh, most of the mu the vast majority of the music I found was on an old website called GarageBand, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and it was called Podsafe Music. So this is all music that I have, uh, that it's perfectly reasonable to, uh, put on these podcasts. Uh, if you are interested, I can oftentimes find the, the name of the band. The name of the band will be listed in the post. And uh, go look these bands up and, and buy their music. Because um, if they're cool enough to let me use this, you should be cool enough to pay 99 cents or whatever to buy one of their songs. Uh, on that note, I will see you next time.